Hello and welcome to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. Today I'm being joined in studio by comedian and chairman of the Political Orphanage podcast, Andrew Heaton, and journalist Liz Wolf of Reason Magazine. We survived 2020 and all of the Jumanji-like horrors that came with it. And so naturally, 2021 is already being characterized by a surging interest in Drumroll, please. <laughs> Aliens. <laughs> Aliens is the thing that everybody seems to be talking about. I have been itching to get into this, and these two space cadets both happen to be here in D.C., so that's what's happening today. We're going to get into the surge in UFO coverage, aliens, conspiracy theories, our trust issues in government, and more. But before we go down that rabbit hole, I want to ask all of you people out there in YouTube and TV and podcast land, do we still call this TV if it's a YouTube show? I tell people I have a TV show, and then they're like, where do I watch it? YouTube. It's That's the same thing, right? Uh, so there's a big red subscribe button down below your screen. Please hit it and join our community. We have new episodes every week on Thursdays and videos throughout the week. You can also follow us on social media and like us on Twitter and Facebook at RightlyAJ. If the truth is indeed out there, then you will hear about it here first. This is the way. All right. So... Aliens are suddenly taking over the news cycle in 2021. We had an insurrection. We had a complete meltdown of the public health system. And now we have like valid, real information that UFOs are real and that aliens could also be on them. Do you buy it? Uh, first, I missed that other stuff you were talking about, about the insurrections. And all. I've been paying attention to the aliens the whole time. It happened. And uh, the, the sad answer is, no, I don't think that that's happening. I think that this is more a phenomenon of media and journalism than it is a phenomenon of aliens, although I hope I'm wrong. It'd be really cool if they turned up. But I, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that it's, it's a, a journalistic phenomenon. But the information out there has just been a constant stream for the past year. Like, it is like the, the, deep state establishment, right? Like the, the high rungs of the government have actually just been open and vocal about this. And you have to wonder why, like what is going on here that all of a sudden they're validating this information. I, so I'm going to take slight issue with, with that premise in that you're absolutely correct in that there have been a lot of UFO headlines and anybody that doesn't think this is happening, search UFOs and you'll find a variety of headlines from popular mechanics and the Washington Post and the New York Times. Those are all very much there. The implication is that there's been a massive amount of UFO sightings that have happened and that the government is beginning to tip the deck on it. That's kind of the, the uh, inclination that we get from this. What's really happening, because UFO sightings have declined precipitously over the last 10 years, coinciding about the time when everybody got a camera on their phone, what's happening is there are one or two writers at the New York Times who write really good kind of clickbaity headlines about UFOs. All of the other newspapers look at those and go, this is great. We're going to get in on that. They write about it. And then the talking heads talk about it. So I think there's really only one or two actual UFO phenomenon happening, but it gets scaled up within the media and it's fun to talk about. And as a result, there's this 
impression that you This is like the way the entire media ecosystem works. Well, yeah, yes. I do also think there's a component to this, which is that like the reason why New York Times maybe is sticking out to you as a purveyor of UFO headlines is also partially because New York Times has a really robust A-B testing process for their headlines. So they're very, very focused on trying to figure out what is marketable, what actually will do well. New York Times is sort of, uh, you know, at the very forefront of, of testing headlines out uh, the way they do. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but, you know, they'll they'll run a headline and then the headline will will disappear or be tweaked merely 30 minutes later or three hours later because they're basically testing things out internally uh, and trying to figure out what draws the most traffic. So I think the traffic hypothesis is very fair. I'm also curious. I Tom Cotton's name kept coming up in all of the UFO related articles that I've been reading over the you know last few months. And I'm very curious about whether or not this is an effort to distract from some of the other unsavory things he's sort of been um, you know, putting his name behind. I'm thinking about his op-ed a year and a half, two years ago. But year the level ago. of coordination that that would require yeah. would be so massive. And that Fair. would actually be like conspiratorial. <laughs> I, so I, I have so many uh, Tom Cotton-related conspiracies. No, I, I guess I, I'm just... I don't think he exists. <laughs> I think actual, no, but I mean, he, he had that person. entire op-ed, also New York Times uh, related, where he called for bringing what police uh, into the streets, mil- the U.S. military into the streets to suppress protesters. Um, and and I think it's really worth considering. Okay, to what degree is you know is he or or other sort of prominent Republicans trying to rebrand themselves? Um, or to at least distract from other unsavory news cycles by saying things about UFOs. Yeah, but like all these, all these lawmakers are asked about yeah, the UFO true. stories. And when you have the stories come out of like places like the New York Times and everybody yeah. writes the, the rewrites of those stories, people like us then talk about them and, and share the ideas. And then the more discussion that happens of, uh, around this subject, just more comes. UFOs yeah, so- have always been. They also have the opportunity to decline to comment, as they do all the time with a gazillion freaking issues. And Rubio loves yes. to talk about yep. this, and then he always turns it toward being a national security right. issue. Which, yes. which, if, if you were mm. going to, I'm going to try to avoid conspiracy thinking today. If I were conspiratorially minded, I think where <laughs> I would go is uh, if, if you were looking to beef up the defense budget, it doesn't. It's not a horrible thing to imply that there's some sort of really good technology from another foreign power coming into our skies and surveilling us. Maybe we should put a little bit more money in the Pentagon budget. Uh, if, if you're if you're a kind of hawkish Republican, it it doesn't hurt to like kind of goose people's fear about this kind of thing. I also imagine that they're reacting potentially, and I, this is what I sort of meant when I brought up Tom Cotton, and I think Marco Rubio is a really good example of this. I think. If I were sort of this hawkish law and order type conservative and I noticed uh, the sort of public consensus shifting away from wanting military involvement, U.S. military involvement abroad and away from wanting such high Defense Department uh, budgets and even away from, uh, you know, having these really uh, enormous police forces in major American cities. If I noticed that the tides were turning away from these types of things, that public sentiment was shifting, I think I would get a little anxious. Thankfully, I'm not that person and I never will be. Where is Tom DeLonge of Blink-182 in this entire story? Because you just cracked this case wide open on the Political Orphanage podcast in a big way. And and big props to you for, like, taking the time to investigate this stuff. But, like, top military brass, right, are, like, Mm -hmm. leaving the service, talking about potentially that there are aliens Mm -hmm. or definitely UFOs on mainstream media outlets. 
but they are all now going to a new side project that has to do with, unfortunately. With Tom Delange, <laughs> the, the guitarist from Blink-182. Yeah, th- that's a very kind compliment. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll say, I, I got interested in this topic because while I am deeply skeptical, I love it. Uh, I grew up listening to Coast to Coast AM, which is like the BBC for people who think they've been abducted by aliens. I really enjoy it. I think it's fun. I think it's creatively stimulating. And I, I like you, kept seeing these headlines and was thinking... At first, wow, it really feels like like the Pentagon's kind of bracing us for for some big disclosure. And you start seeing headlines about that of like a um, you know, top Pentagon official admits UFOs exist, which is now Trump worked it into uh, one of his uh, a piece of legislation at the end of his term um, related to COVID aid that there would also be declassifications uh, of UFO information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so it, it implies all this stuff. Uh, how? I spent several days researching all of this, I, and I went through, I found like every astronaut who claims to believe in aliens and went through all of their stuff. I looked for every uh, every sitting government official that might have input on this, and it all traces back to Tom DeLoge from Blink-182. All of it, like I have the like the crazy chart with the red string and things, and basically the thing is, Tom DeLoge from 182, who's a lifelong paranormal enthusiast, uh, has a show that he produces on the History Channel. And they hired a couple of former government officials to come on and promote it. And so a lot of the feed that you're seeing, for example, there was a very interesting um, segment on Fox and Friends about a year and a half ago mm-hmm. with Chris Mellon, who is the maybe third highest ranking uh, intelligence person at the Pentagon. And he's retired from that now, but he's on there and he's talking about how, yes, UFOs exist. We acknowledge them, all this what you don't ever really quite see is the reason that he's going on this stuff is because he's promoting a History Channel special and, and that all of this basically I don't think they even there. know. I don't think they even know these things. Really? I mean, no, I don't think that anybody cares to ask. It's just when somebody from, uh, you know, former military or used to work at ATIP, right? So ATIP is the military's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, yeah. which was supposedly expired, you know, in the budget in 2012 and run by this guy, Luis Elizondo. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've all gone now to contribute work or be fellows at Tom DeLonge's organization to the STARS Academy right. of Arts and Sciences. They're being paid to talk about this. And I don't think it's grift. Like, I don't think that they're lying. I don't think that they're lying about anything that they say they saw mm-hmm. while in the service. But they are definitely now monetizing yes. information and little questions that they might be able to throw into it's the media. It's the, the living embodiment of the just asking questions type of And just asking lives, questions, right? you know? It's like they're just asking questions and they found a way to make that super, super lucrative uh, and to go on major TV networks and promote that. And, and there is also a kind of uh, productive ambiguity that everyone is participating in here. Yeah. So if you watch Chris Mellon, one of the people that's a fellow uh, with, with this program that you've described, um, and he'll say, I, as a, a former Pentagon official, will acknowledge that UFOs exist what he means is very specifically and very literally, there are objects in the sky. We don't know what they are. They're sky mysteries. That's what he's talking about, right? In popular parlance, when I say UFO, I mean spaceship yes. or, or flying saucer. And if you watch their footage, they're always very careful to say uh, there is a aeronautical phenomenon which, which we, we cannot identify. They don't say, yep, uh, Pentagon admitted it. We, we have a bunch of dead bodies of aliens. They're all in Area 51. There's yeah. there's something that crap. Like they never ever say that. The furthest they'll go is we are not alone. I can say yeah. uh, with some certainty that 
we are not alone. But that doesn't mean that it's not the Chinese right. violating your airspace. We're, we're very, very frequently what they'll say is, I can tell you as a former Pentagon official that we do not have this tech, or I am unaware that our government has any of this technology. And it's like, well, that I, you probably, there are probably many, many, many people that were in the Pentagon when the stealth bomber was being developed who did not know about the stealth bomber. If it all has the, the tenor of like a, a husband responding to a wife's allegations that like maybe he's cheating on her, and it feels a lot like a lot of hedging of like, well, I can either confirm you can't really establish that I was with that person specifically between those hours in that place. But yes, I have interacted with her, you know, at least once or twice. I need you to of, speak to my lawyer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it, it has this tenor to it of just like there. It feels like the the headlines are, are huge extrapolations from what the person is actually saying. So I want to I want to I want to go to you know the the likelihood in which this could be real, right? Like, what does it mean if this is real? But first, your theory that you had posited on your show uh, that you thought was the most likely one was not that a foreign power here on Earth is violating our airspace with impunity. That would be pretty outrageous. Like, that could be an international incident yeah. if another country had actually developed something and was flying over our bases. It could blow up in a huge way. The most likely option, you said, which I had never, ever considered, which kind of blows my mind now that you've said it, is that the government, our government itself, could actually have at the highest levels developed new technology, drone technology that they have patented, uh, and are testing it over their own military installations to see how service members react and what they do under those circumstances. And I was left going, I believe in aliens, but that strikes me as quite possible. Uh, yeah, I, well, thank you. Um, I, uh, I, I am a genius and, and, uh, and a policy wonk when it comes to aliens. Uh, yeah, I, I think if you were, let, let's say we were to jump back 20 or 30 years, uh, or let, let's say 30 years ago, I don't think stealth bombers had been decommissioned yet 30 years ago or 40 years ago. I don't know. Take your pick when they're being developed. If you were to take a well-decorated uh, jet pilot in, in the, the U.S. Air Force and they encountered not knowing about stealth bombers because they're classified at this time. They encountered them. What they would describe is, I saw this crazy-shaped black object that could fly at angles I've never seen before, that could fly faster than anything we have that I couldn't get on radar. And that would imply, well, we don't have that, so it must be something else. But as you point out, it's something that was in development that was not widely known. Yep. And I, I think that the chain of probability would indicate something very much like that. Is it more likely that we have technology that is not yet declassified that we use to to test out in our own areas? Or is it more likely that aliens are super interested in our Air Force bases? I think the former is more likely. And I think that the, um, the, the likelihood that it's us rather than the Chinese or the Russians, which is strongly implied by Senator Rubio, is also more likely just because our budget is so huge that I think we, we are ahead of them in terms of uh, aeronautical innovation. Yep. And on top of that, if I were going to test out crazy new technology, I wouldn't test it on China because if I crashed it, they'd get it and I might start a war. Whereas if I tried over Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma, like something goes wrong, I can recover that pretty easily. So I think it's yep. far more likely to be some kind of super ultra drone that in about 10 years will become publicly disclosed. But what if aliens are real? I just, <laughs> I think they are, okay? Like, I'll put my cards on the table. I have always found it to be absurd, the idea that we're alone in the universe. I, I look at everything out there. I'm also a Christian. I believe in a creator and a vast galaxy and a universe that was painted by a god. And humanity is the only thing that you could come up with that could 
talk to each other, write, think, do art. Like, that would be so boring and ungodly to have us be it. What do you think? Well, can I, can I follow up on that? When you say that you believe in aliens, or you think there are aliens, uh, do you mean in a probabilistic sense that we are not alone in general? Or do you mean that aliens have come to Earth and have interacted with us? Mm, well, in Alien versus Predator, they came to the Earth. <laughs> Uh, no, so I think uh, I think probably the the former. You know, okay. just I'm in that same yeah. camp too, and I like and I actually I, I was honored to meet Buzz Aldrin one time, and yeah. that's the first question. It's the second question I had. The first question I had was not about aliens because I was afraid his handlers would like pull him away. Mm -hmm. uh, but once I established that I wasn't going to make him look bad, I wanted, and he had the exact same opinion, which was that you think about the the sheer scale of the universe, the number of stars we have in our galaxy. I, I've done back of the envelope math before, where if you took 1% of the stars that exist in our galaxy and say 1% of them have planets, 1% of them are Earth-like planets, and 1% of them have bacteria, and one, the fraction, 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 you still have like a million uh, lives that should be able to have wristwatches and conversations in our galaxy. Well, so I'm, I'm very curious, in, in your sort of theories of this, are you specifically also saying alien life forms that mirror or mimic us in some ways or that share certain attributes? Like, or are we talking crazy, you know, amoeba creatures? Like, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about life in other corners? Well, it'd have to be intelligent life forms, right? Yeah. So, so first so of I all, guess, I guess flesh that out for me a little bit. You know, I was looking at in images of like Scandinavian-looking Venusians on the the internet this morning, and yeah, it's like, not. hey, probably not that though. Yeah, no, I realize my husband actually looks like one of them, so that's a little suspicious. Some, <laughs> he might have infiltrated. I've always suspected your husband is. Some right? some have always said that aliens are already among us, <laughs> and we just need to figure out who they are. Your husband could be one of. Them. But I am curious, like, flesh, flesh this out for me a little bit. What would these life forms sort of look like and sound like and be look like? Look like, oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I hope they look like the Kaminoans from Star Wars Episode <laughs> Two, which is like very classic alien look, tall, long necks, like giraffes, and then big old heads <laughs> and big eyes. I mean, that's what I, I like to imagine, that there are these sort of enlightened beings. But, you know... I, 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 they could they could be like squirrels. <laughs> they could just be like squirrels that have built like their own civilization of the stars. It doesn't matter to me. And honestly, I've never sat down to actually think about yeah. that part of it. What would they look like? But it is obvious to me that the science has changed so much over the past couple of decades in terms of life beyond this planet. Finding water, finding evidence mm -hmm. of breathable air in other places that is no longer with us. Like they're talking about Goldilocks planets now throughout um, per throughout this sector of the galaxy. And that's pretty darn exciting. Well, so I'm fascinated. From the probabilistic standpoint, are we talking like our contemporaries existing now? Or could it, we possibly be talking about life forms that existed many, many thousands of years ago where we might uncover evidence of their existence but not necessarily interact with them in the flesh. You, to you me, have, that seems feasible. Well, the evidence is already the Mayan temples. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the answer is both. And actually, okay. one of the disturbing things about this idea, if, if, if we accept the premise, which I think is a very logical, rational premise, that there are just, there's such a mind-boggling amount of planets, even yeah. within the Goldilocks zone, some fraction of them have intelligent life. Because all of the stars and planets in the galaxy are coming into being at different times, it's presumable that there are both thousands of species out there and that many of them are millions of years older than us, which mm -hmm. would beg the question, yeah. why haven't they decided to be neighborly mm -hmm. and swing by to you know, give us donuts and ask about our sitcoms and things? The fact that we haven't encountered <laughs> them 
um, raises some dark questions of like, well, yeah. does everybody just nuke themselves? Is that the, is that well, the end point of all civilizations? They saw some of our sitcoms and they saw like Friends and the whole Friends reboot, and they're like, ah, it's not worth engaging with these yeah, people. Yeah, they talked They're like, we'll we'll not come back it. when you get really good puns. Yeah, get some get some better taste. Guys. Oh, so so you're just talking about like observing us, right? So mm. aliens aliens are are found out to be real, right? So let's even say that something crashes. In the Ukraine, it is an alien vessel. It is clearly evidence of intelligent life beyond our, our Earth. And there's, there's going to be a moment of figuring out what do we all do with this. So aliens have not landed and invaded, but we've got their spacecraft, and it's obvious. Yeah. Peace on Earth, Independence Day unity. Like, do we become better or worse off in that kind of situation? I think that's the best thing that could happen to us. I would be thrilled if we became aware of aliens, if they crashed, awesome. If, if we just, if we had incontrovertible proof of radio signals from another planet, as long as we had confirmation that there is intelligent life elsewhere that's not human, I think it would be wonderful. The reason that I say that is I think human beings are inherently tribalistic. I think we have a deep set innate impulse to support our team in the defense against another team. And we mm. crave having an other to alienate and to fight and to compete against. And I think just having a concept that Earth is not alone and that there is a truly alien other out there, I think you would see a greater degree of international cooperation. I think you'd see people I going, I don't like the Chinese communists, but they only got one head. You're saying, well, yeah, no, I think this is interesting. I sort of apply this to like how I imagine parents relate to their child. It's like, we have a common enemy, okay? We can be united right. in this. And I, I sort of see a similar situation with aliens. The thing that I would sort of push back on there is we already struggle to understand each other and to come to any sort of consensus or even interpreting each other's arguments and beliefs in good faith. You add a whole bunch of other complexity that comes with an entirely different species in here. And how does that go? Are we attempting to reconcile our differences I, with them? We already feel to do that with each other, even people who live within the same state or the same city. I think the the case for what you said about there, you know, possibly being peace on earth and goodwill to men is that we would be re-inspired. Mm -hmm. We would we would realize that there are possibilities that Elon Musk should in fact have an even more massive private uh, and public budget given to him to do his research in the stars. Like there would be sort of a reimagined sense of what's possible. Like I think it is it is true that everything that was accomplished in the 1960s and 70s and Ezra Klein was writing about this the other day in the New York Times that like we accomplished all these great societal advancements, more equality, more rights and going for the stars like all at the same time. That makes some sense to me. Like maybe we would progress. But I think you're wrong. I think <laughs> that, How dare you? Tell me so why. so that craft lands in the Ukraine. There's going to be a bloodbath over who owns it. Okay. The countries are going to then race to that crash site, violate one another's sovereignty because it is so clear the stakes will be so high mm. as to who owns that technology. You will have to fight for it. The United Nations is not going to like get it and then put it in some facility for everybody to have access to. Russia's going to scoop it up and they're going to keep it from everybody else. Well, so are we so sure that the technology would be the focus as opposed to not not literally dissecting, but at least understanding this new sort of species or the form of life? Why would we be so interested in the technology at the expense? Of well, I think the, <laughs> yeah, the, the military. You think the military like, capabilities the, the, that the that insane is really technology to necessary to go across this. I mean, it's it's crazy to fathom how yeah. advanced you'd have to be to get 
to, to cross any galactic stretch, it would be really good propulsive technology. But what makes us think that we would even have the ability to replicate it? I suppose we would need to dissect it in order to figure out whether we could. Yeah, we might we might die in the process. You know, like if we if we went <laughs> back in the past, we accidentally dropped off a nuclear reactor in Victorian England, they'd probably blow themselves up. Like there's a chance we'd do that. Well, this is the folly of mankind. We want to be masters of the universe. <laughs> yeah. And all of these different countries, like let's just think of you know the big ones, right? So like Russia, China, Belgium. United States, you know, powerful states. Um, big ambitions. We think that if push comes to shove with outside alien forces, who better to decide what happens in that relationship with these mm -hmm. extraterrestrials than us? The Chinese yeah. would feel that way. They would think that they are the ones who need to lead the way in those interactions. They would covet the technology, dominate the Earth militarily with it, or at least that would be their hope. Mm -hmm. And everybody else, their incentive would be to get that technology, and we will rip each other's heads off to get it. So you, you make a great point. Theoretically, let's say that, that our, our awareness comes not from a crash-landed vehicle, yeah. uh, which has always struck me as a very odd thing in American <laughs> UFO. Well, if it has such advanced technology, why would it crash <laughs> exactly. and land it's, in our... It's so advanced. You're you're in Crimea, of all places? You, 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 like, you, really? But, but lightning storms are a problem for you. <laughs> yeah, but right. let, let's say, theoretically, that it's not that. It's just that, that SETI, uh, the SETI Institute goes, hey, we're, we've got this unequivocal signal that yeah. we're getting and we're going to make it public and we now know that there's some sort of alien species and that's all we know. We just know that yeah. there's some sort of language. Do you think the same thing would play out or do you, do you think that my positive scenario would be more likely to happen? Well, I think we all agree that when militaries around the world get more budget, right? When every nation is sort of increasing their arms race, increasing the size of their military, trying to update their technology, it creates tension. Do we, do we agree with that kind of like as libertarians? Like, sure. Like that, that sort of makes yeah. the world more tense when everybody's in that position. Countries around the world, their people would be scared. I don't think in chaos, right? I think everybody would go about their lives, but they would be afraid mm. of the possibilities. And military budgets around the world would just balloon. And you would have tensions rise as just a result of that. Having like the war drum in the background constantly can only lead to bad things. Maybe eventually peace will break out, but only after a lot of bloodshed because of the fear. Couldn't there be a certain amount of peace that's sort of gotten from this sense of like mutually assured destruction, but at the hands of the other, <laughs> where <laughs> there must be some amount of banding together and this sort of, instead of racing against one another to develop this technology, there's this sense of, well, they've made contact with us. They surely have the ability to obliterate us. What are we going to do about it? We better act fast. I think so. I'm, 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 I'm in the space that. Pollyanna camp. I agree. <laughs> there, was, nope. there was a moment during the, uh, towards the end of the Soviet Union, where Reagan was walking with Gorbachev and he asked him, if aliens came down and invaded America, would you be on our side or their side? <laughs> and Gorbachev was like, clearly we'd be on your that side. That is different than just getting access to the technology and realizing that they're out there and that one day we might confront them. An invasion would call for everybody turning their guns but, on But at things. the same time, though, let, let's say that aliens exist, we're aware of it, and we do we do bump up yeah. our militaries <laughs> because we're, we're worried that they might come someday. Don't you think at the same time that we would be going, hey, China, in the event that we're invaded, let's start coming up with contingent plans. Let's form an Earth NATO against whatever threat this might be. Hmm. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Yeah, I, I, I don't find that to be super possible. The thing that is really interesting, just like listening to you guys talking about this, is it's fascinating what has sort of become accepted within the Overton window of semi-serious American political discourse lately. I've been thinking about sort of the rise in, in UFO-related headlines, but then we're also right now dealing with this, like, is it conspiratorial, is it not? The lab leak theory um, for the origins of COVID and trying to sort of figure out, okay, mm -hmm. well, we know this originated in Wuhan, China, 
But how specifically, this has significant implications in terms of uh, how culpable China is. Uh, and, you know, it it just has great significance uh, for, I think, U.S. Uh, diplomacy and sort of relations with the rest of the well, China's relations with the rest of the world specifically, because we're basically trying to grapple with this idea of did this originate in a wet market where, you know, a human tasted, uh, you know, a little bit of bat soup and that's how uh, COVID became a thing? Uh, or is it something where researchers in a lab in Wuhan at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were um, working and developing this and either unintentionally became sick and then released it? Or the more conspiratorial angle is they intentionally released it and there's a sort of bioweapon concept. But the thing that I think is really fascinating is we're talking about UFOs semi-seriously because that's fallen within the sort of acceptable overturn yep. window of discourse. And now we're also sort of grappling with this on a very serious and consequential level because this is something that's claimed the lives of, you know, an insane number of people worldwide. How do you guys look at that? I suspect that um, the greater the populist movements you have in a country, the more conspiracy theories you're going to see. Yeah. Because uh, populism is the idea that there's an elite and then there's the us and the us has been trammeled by the elite. And I think that that's going to lend itself towards a certain degree of thinking that there are these small units of nefarious people or mm-hmm. groups that are, you know, secretly collaborating to end us. So I think that kind of thinking is more apt to increase as we go that direction. Yeah. The most recent Pew research on trust in government puts it down uh, towards 22%. And in terms of people who think that the government will just about always do what is right, Americans are closer to two to five percent like that's incredibly low so the Mm -hmm. thing that makes me so pissed off about all of this is i think the the pollyanna-ish narrative on this is great we're libertarians they don't trust government too much anymore that's awesome for us okay great it was a mistake and and i think in in reality what's actually (laughs) happening now and i think it's even more concerning and, and stressful for us is they're not flocking toward libertarianism. They're not sort of taking home these these lessons of when you centralize power uh, and sort of detach uh, policymakers from this idea of local knowledge and letting people largely choose how to live their lives for themselves. When you when you take that away, what actually happens is people really flock toward populism. They flock toward populism on the left. They're, they flock toward it on the right. We sort of saw that with the election and sort of rise, the cult of personality, uh, if you will, around Donald Trump. And now we're seeing an awful lot of that on the left right now. And I think it's really disheartening. It feels like uh, Americans, our, our countrymen won't take home the sort of appropriate lessons about concentrated power. Yeah, I've, I've said it on this show a number of times. I think one of my great regrets as sort of a movement libertarian, I believe in the ideas, I believe in the, in the institutions that we've built around it. But beating the drum for a handful of decades about government can only do wrong. I don't know why that was thought to be a good idea. Like yeah. why that was thought that like, oh, well, people will then just form like happy little communes and organize yeah. themselves as individuals and we'll have happier people. No, people will be angry, feel betrayed. And then you have to ask yourself, where does that go? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it results in strongman governments. People naturally go back towards order. They don't like chaos. And anything that can be tied to chaos, they will choose order over that instead. But I think there's also the challenge of instead of feeling some amount of gratitude for the areas of private sector, 
innovation that have really made our lives measurably, drastically better over the last 20 or so years. I'm thinking about how I can order something on Amazon and have it delivered uh, within a day or two days to my apartment in Brooklyn without ever having to leave the house, which is really helpful if you're sick or you're busy or you have a newborn at home well, that's or whatever. The thing, like, well, like, we we've take been these pushing, for granted. We've been pushing people in that direction for a yeah. long time. And, and so er, early in the pandemic, there were some polls coming out about trust in government versus trust in like the, the private sector. Yeah. I don't remember the exact numbers, but like trust in CEOs and, and companies is, is so high. So high. Really? And I, I remember huh. numerous institutions uh, that we favor running articles going like, yay, that's so wonderful. Like trust in the private sector is so strong. Mm -hmm. But to me, the end goal of that is just going to be anointing different kings. Mm. And these kings don't have any rules. <laughs> they don't, there's no bill of that's, rights that's, constitution that's not, for that's them. Not, that's not totally true. I, I get what you're saying about, you know, the constitution doesn't bind Facebook, for example, in terms of their content moderation decisions. But the thing that I think is really interesting, and we saw news of this sort of surfacing maybe two or three weeks ago, Facebook does have an oversight board um, that's sort of their uh, governmental, if you will, entity. Accountable for, to no one. Yes, accountable to no one, but that is focused uh, on attempting to adjudicate content moderation decisions and sort of be this internal arbiter of what types of decisions are appropriate versus which ones aren't. Um, I don't think that's fully satisfying to people approaching it from sort of your school of thought, but I do think we're beginning to see, I mean, remember, these are relatively new questions, trying to figure out the appropriate amount of content moderation, whether it's okay to kick off, you know, kick President Trump off of Twitter. That's a relatively, uh, I, I suppose they had four years to grapple with that decision, but it really only uh, came to a head within the last few yeah. months. And now they're sort of grappling with how much can we can we do stuff like this without actually sort of losing trust and then also inviting regulation, right? Because but that's the really big thing that's media, happening. Social media is kind of like, I think, a small nexus to sort of yeah. think about this rather than just true. the corporate sector structuring all of our lives in a way that they are, again, accountable to no one as long as money is being made and stakeholders are, are increasing their profits. Like, that really does worry me. Like, my, my favorite dystopians, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, uh, Rollerball, where, you know, everybody in these sports leagues are playing a uh, death sport on behalf of different companies. It's like Nike playing against McDonald's in death sport in a ring. It's like Hunger Games, but companies. Uh, and then, like, Ready Player One. The world gets mm -hmm. to be so unlivable and awful that everybody is just sort of lured into virtual reality to live out the rest of their lives in peace and comfort and enjoying their reality. But, like, that's not the ideal. And I just feel like libertarians, we've sort of given up. I, I, th <laughs> I think that, that libertarianism has such a profound focus on individual autonomy that it oftentimes mm -hmm. loses sight of things that connect individuals to other individuals. So there, mm -hmm. there's so much of an emphasis on any coercive force is wrong in all situations on every planet throughout the time-space continuum. All government force is always evil. Uh, and there's other, there's other elements to this equation. One of them that I think is a very important one right now that I'm very concerned about is just there's plummeting social trust and there's lowering social capital in the United States. Um, the government is part of that, but it also applies to journalism and it also just applies to how people feel about strangers and their neighbors and things mm -hmm. like that. You want to have high social trust and high social capital in a society that's good for an economy, it's good for just enjoying life, and uh, we, we seem to be lowering in that regard. It seems like we're really uh, mapping some of the differences between thick libertarianism and thin libertarianism, which I think are things that are, it's sort of an interesting debate within the sort of broader libertarian umbrella, but this thin libertarian idea of the main uh, thing that we ought to be concerned with is government infringement on individual rights, 
And uh, in in the absence of that, we really shouldn't be all too concerned, as opposed to a thicker libertarian concept, which is saying, hey, we have the skepticism of power wielded by government. What about skepticism of it wielded by uh, corporations? Or the thing that's more compelling to me, what about skepticism of the sort of uh, woke uh, hordes within these companies that are pressuring the higher ups to make certain decisions, which then pushes people sort of, you know, deeper underground and pushes certain ideas deeper underground, really. They've lost a sense of how to be judicious um, with what types of things are acceptable for what types of views are acceptable for people uh, at their companies to hold. And I think that's an area where I think the thicker libertarians, uh, not thick with two C's, I mean, you know, normal thicker libertarians <laughs> have a lot of concern there. And so I think you see differing levels of concern about those sort of woke mobs uh, based off of where you sort of fall on that ideological spectrum. Is this why you've kind of moved away from libertarianism as a person? Uh, yeah, to a great extent. Yeah, like I, I think that um, I, I think that there's a risk of becoming dogmatic or, or intellectually ossified around one model, and and I see that in libertarianism a lot of the time, where it's just all coercive force is bad, and yeah. right. I'm not getting that vibe from either of you. But there are people that that's it, and nothing mm-hmm. else counts. And I I think that um, that is a very important thing. I remain very skeptical about uh, government authority. I remain very skeptical about government efficiency, and so. Um, I, I, you know, th- those are all factors coming in, uh, but I, I think that the the equation's broader than that. I think that there are other elements that are at work, and and I, I think that um, part of the reason the libertarian movement has been so stunted, I think, is because it only has that one axis that it's operating under, and everybody else in America is operating under other axes. Did you formerly buy in? Was there some sort of catalyst or precipitating incident that sort of led to this this shift? Um, I mean, I, I did buy it. Like, I, I, I got into PGR work and Milton Friedman at the same time <laughs> and, and was very much in that, like, you know, if the government was in charge of the Sahara, we'd run out of sand kind of thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's not so much that I've quit. Like, I, I don't agree with that premise. I think that there are just functions that the government's never going to be good at. There's, yeah. there's informational elements that it's always going to make poor. There's all sorts of things that I think are very much accurate there. Uh, it's more like my my focus has broadened, and, and mm. I, I think that uh, a lot of the time libertarians are very very narrow. And I'm I've kind of taken a broader. Yeah, way. I I was Andrew Yang's target audience when he when he was <laughs> running for president. Like like what he was talking about, like respect for capitalism, right? Uh, the real ideal of free markets and all that stuff, and really like being happy about our societal gains. Like yeah. he's not like a doom and gloom socialist and all that stuff. Like the world is off. The world is obviously better in the United yeah. States. Is, is prospering even in times where we right now feel like it's really hard. What he was talking about, like universal basic income, to me sounded exactly like what I want to see, which is government doing the only thing that it is really good at, which is sending you things in the mail. <laughs> in this case, checks. And I feel but like- very slowly, and, with, and, with significant delays. And while they send us the checks, maybe they send us two by accident, and maybe they send a load of them to Nigerian scammers, which this all happened uh, with COVID bailout money. Like, that is the kind of thing where I go, if we are going to save trust in government and keep our society together and keep people from rioting and tearing down the Capitol building, which mm-hmm. is scary stuff, we need to rethink like what the government does, what it is good at, and retool for the 21st century. And I think like libertarians need to get with the program. Well, so I'm curious, like make your complaints a little bit more specific. Not that I'm a libertarian who can wave a magic wand and, and fix these things that I think you're reacting to, but what are the specific concerns that you have or things that you feel like libertarians inappropriately downplay? 
I'll, I'll give one, and, yeah. I, and I, this applies to me very much. Mm-hmm. I think that libertarians are tend to very much downplay emotional impact and psychic utility. Mm. So I'll, I'll give a microcosm example that I think you can scale out. Are you saying we don't have good touch with our emotions as libertarians? <laughs> We yes. all need to kind of therapy and, together. And for, for, for the record, I like. I feel like we need more Vulcans. I think, like, I, while, while I think that libertarians really overdo it, yeah. I, I wish that that impulse was much more prevalent within the Republican mm-hmm. and Democratic parties. Like, I think they they are emotionally incontinent and need much more of that rationalism. So it's not. Mm-hmm. This isn't a one sided thing. But like, like um, uh, Uber used to do surge pricing. Yeah. And economically, that is a good idea. You're you're incentivizing the market for more people to enter it. That gives yeah. everybody more cars, more cheaply. All these things. It's all very. Everybody hated it, and they got rid of it because customers hated it. And it's like, right? It turns out people would rather actually not have that material good because they they would rather not feel taken advantage of. And I think you can kind of scale that out and go even if the even if the rational economic arguments are 100% accurate you have to take into account that there is some amount of emotional ligament that's involved so in this So are you saying for example like libertarians when there's a hurricane that strikes they should probably hold off with the price gouging related No I, I agree or? with them on that but okay. it, it's more like um, I think let's say that there is a you you know there's going to be a government program that's going to be ineffectual but it's mm-hmm. really not going to be a serious infraction of your rights yeah. it's just it's just dumb right mm-hmm. um attacking it so vociferously i yeah. think is a, a misspent energy yeah that um, makes sense because it's it, it it like theoretically let's say let's say that um that the democrats want to put a sticker on all guns that says don't shoot this at the wrong people and you know it's not going to do anything <laughs> but for some reason it's going to make everybody much happier and feel safer it's like okay that doesn't bother me so much and i i feel like that's a thing that would be vociferously attacked in any way shape or form yeah I mean, it's, to, to some degree, this is libertarians' strong suit, right? Like, being such Vulcans uh, and being able to laugh at the the lowly hobbits and sort of the, the hooligans and all the foolishness of people attempting to... I mean, I, I think there is a truth... Uh, at the bottom of what libertarians are saying, though, and I, I'm thinking about like the labels that we attach to cigarette packs yep. and all these things where it's like, okay, well, these like disgusting cancerous lungs do not, in fact, dissuade me from having a few beers and then going outside to smoke a cigarette. Like, let's just be clear about that. And I think there, there's, although it's understandable, especially from a temperament perspective of saying, okay, this libertarian uh, persnicketiness doesn't necessarily appeal to all, all types of people and to everybody's sort of uh, general sense of, of what they want uh, in their, their peers and their political movement. I do think it does get to the heart of something really important, which is that we need to actually be making policy that attempts to give wide berth to people's choices. And when we have these sort of moralistic labels that we slap onto things, we're not doing that. And that says something about how we conceive of ourselves politically and what types of things are within the purview of government. And so I think it's fair for libertarians to react pretty strongly to say, hey, you judging me for going outside to smoke a cigarette, uh, if that's my choice and it doesn't really affect many people other than me, that's not really something that the framers uh, envisioned you doing and screw you for doing that. I want to take Conceded. us. Yeah. I want to take us like a hard pivot back in the other yeah. direction, Go just to it. wind us down, because I really wanted to see what you think about this. And you're a religious studies guy. Uh huh. With aliens, <laughs> <laughs> are they fallen creatures who are going to need redemption in Christ? <laughs> if they come to Earth, are we going to minister to them in the same way that we would have anybody else 
throughout human history because this was one of the subjects of C.S. Lewis's books. Yeah. Uh, it was called they the were called the, trilogy. Yeah, so the, yeah, the mm. space trilogy, right? So this is like the whole idea that like if God made the entire universe and everybody and <laughs> Eve, you know, and Adam just botched the entire thing with uh, with sin for all of God's creatures. Did that apply to them, and are they accountable? Why do you think they're fallen? Well, that's my question. Like, <laughs> if if God created a perfect universe, a perfect world, mm-hmm. and you know Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent, right? And we fall. Mm-hmm. How big is the we? Is the we mm-hmm. humankind, and and it's, or is the we all of God's creation? On the other side of the universe, do you have these aliens, right? These other, this other species, this other group that God created, who all of a sudden their lives become awful. All of a sudden, people start eating meat and cheating on their spouses, and they're like, "Why did this happen?" Everything that was, was directly appealing to my morals of like being anti-eating meat and anti-cheating on your spouse. Everything was perfect, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. And then they're traveling the galaxy for the sole purpose of finding out who did this, and that's when they find us, the troublemakers. Those bastards. <laughs> Are they fallen in sin? Liz Wolf. I don't know. I, I, I think, I, I legitimately, I think the most Christian answer is like, we ought to turn to scripture to get a sense of this. And I don't think it really <laughs> guides us particularly well in this area. I don't think it really leaves much room for interpretation on the question of aliens. It just doesn't grapple with that question at all. And you would think that um, an omniscient uh, God would give us direction as to, I mean, he knows all of this, right? And so you think that he would give us some amount of direction as to how to grapple with that. But think, he doesn't. You would think that. Uh, he, could just be, he could just be an oversight on God's part. <laughs> Who knows? Lots of oversight on God's part. <laughs> Gosh, I hope there's a God. I think that'd be terrific. I don't presently think so. <laughs> So I would, I would love it if when I when I die, there's a bright light and it turns out there's a plan and I get to be reunited with my pets and some of my family. That would all be terrific. Uh, I don't think that's the case. So as the resident, friendly, low wattage a- atheist here, uh, I don't I, I, I question the premise itself. I do not think there is a fallen world nor sin because I do not mm-hmm. think that there is a Boo. standard for which you could call nor a deity to sit against. That's what a fallen person would do. Boo, Boo. somebody for their optimistic and like very peachy belief. We none of us are going I, to burn but, but in hell. That's, that's great. I'll, I'll put a I'll put a, a science spin on it in that if, if by fallen we mean uh species that are materialistic or competitive or militant or whatever, I think that that's probably true because I suspect that in order to get a brain as large as ours, you probably have to have a certain amount of inherent competitiveness to get there. I think that you probably have kind of a mental arms race. So I'd be surprised if you found a species that had always been perfectly nice to everybody and was really smart. I think that you'd probably cap off at deer. I take umbrage with the concept that you can't be both materialistic and competitive. And be a Christian. Come on. You can be all of Liz Wolf Hardest. No, what I mean is like the idea that we have a society in no, which I there understand. are murders and things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I get it. You're the only person who hasn't shown your hand and said whether or not you believe in aliens. No, I don't believe in aliens. <sighs> now I'm the freak who believes in aliens. <laughs> the guy who hosts the show. Well, no, I, I, I agree. I think that they're out. I just don't think they've come here. I think that there's... The, I'm, I'm with you on wait, the probability wait, wait. thing. I just don't think they're here. <laughs> <sighs> I feel you like see, that's completely I, different. For me, I think it's the opposite. Like, I don't believe in them, but it, I think I could be convinced that they are already among us because there's some freaking weirdos out there, you know? I mean, I think out of libertarian circles, <laughs> those, for crying out loud. Those are the libertarians. <laughs> the aliens, yeah, exactly. actually. If, if they wanted to come blend in without being caught, <laughs> yeah. I'd say sci-fi conventions and liberty conventions would be the two places I'd recommend yeah. they go. Well, there is this interesting concept of, like, the libertarian penumbra and this this sense of, like, okay, <laughs> a- apart from, are you familiar with this? A little bit. Okay, this this idea 
yourself, like what are the sort of、uh, social or hobby types of things that libertarians are attracted to or sort of gravitate toward, apart from something that's explicitly、uh, ordained in our ideology or something that our ideology specifically takes us to, but just a sense of like why are there more libertarians interested in homeschooling、uh, than Democrats and Republicans are? Why are there more libertarians who are big, huge sci-fi fans in the sense of like there are certain. Attributes that sort of accompany libertarianism quite often because your political outlook in life and the things you're interested in are all from a different series of ways that you could just be wired as a person. Like, what are your inclinations? Are you a person who values、um, uh, change, or are you a person who values values consistency? Like,、mm-hmm. these are just like different ways we tilt, and that determines what we are politically. Also, I mean, some of these things very much map to this like individualist versus collectivist sort of way of orienting yourself. I think it very easily follows if you're a libertarian who considers himself to be a hardcore individualist. It's also important that you raise your kids in such a manner. And so, the idea of turning them over to the state to be educated, you know, in a group of twenty-five or thirty kids. Versus homeschooling them and having a lot more、um, control and sort of letting their minds run wild and free, I think that's very appealing to people who care a lot about individualism. The idea, the prospect of your child becoming part of this sort of collectivist、uh, mentality is, I think, really stressful for them. Guys, I want to give you an opportunity to plug all the great things that you're doing in your lives, <laughs> where people can follow you. Andrew, how can people stay in touch and support you and all of your work?、Uh, I got two things to tell. Tell you, should I look at that one? Uh, uh, hey, so I host two podcasts. I host one called "Alienating the Audience," which is all the sci-fi stuff we're chomping at the bit to discuss.、Uh, I, I'm, I'm going as deep as I can. We talk about like the petroleum economics of Dune, and you know what what the ethos of the Matrix is, things like that. So if that's appealing to you, check out "Alienating the Audience." If you are also somebody that is、uh, not really well comporting with the whole red red versus blue slap fight rock'em sock'em robots thing, I host a podcast called "The Political Orphan." For like-minded, free-thinking individuals to come hang out and solve problems. Liz, your entire life is on Clubhouse now.、So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm Liz Wolf. You can find me on Twitter at l i z z y w o l.、Um, I write at Reason. I have a feature coming out in Reason's December print issue, which is all about、uh, my my feature at least is all about the Soviet Union and what it did to food culture. Let me spoil it for you. Not good things. Extremely bad.、Um, so definitely look out for that. And you can absolutely find me on Clubhouse. I sort of lurk around there,、uh, saying all kinds of things that will probably get me in trouble someday. I'm. Amazed it hasn't already, but <laughs> everyone should follow. I am Stephen Kent. This has been right now a special episode, and、uh, yeah, thank you guys for joining me. We'll be back next week with more. See you then.